Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're back with episode 19. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. It's great to be back with you. We are going to kick straight off with the news list. And we're going to, there's been, again, it's it's felt like ever since we came back, it's been a bit of a deluge of news. So we're going to do, we're going to sort of summarise things into a couple of quick categories. So we might start with probably the, uh, the biggest news affecting the specific early education sector and law and regulations and the national quality framework is the the long, long, long awaited national quality agenda review was finally announced and the ministerial decisions were, were sent out by our friends over at Sequa. This has been three years in the running. I think the review started in 2014. So we've been waiting for it for a very long time, but it's um, it's finally out uh, now. So and I know it's Leanne. It's just you... another one of those things, Liam, where the children that are affected have grown <laughs> up and gone to school while it's been happening. Well, well we're, we're going to circle back to the jobs for families package soon, but I'm starting to worry no, but that some it's of the, the same. With well, the no, review. but I'm actually thinking some of the children who are currently in an early child education sector will actually be trying to pass this legislation in about thirty years. <laughs> but um, circling back to the national quality agenda review, Leanne, I know you've. Um, uh, you've disturbingly read the whole thing already, dear. We are going to tackle this what a as nerd. a. I know. What a nerd. I know. It's um. I'm not. I'm, I have as well. But that's all right. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, that's but, right. But that's right. It is. We, it is confession time. <laughs> we are going to tackle this in a, in a, in a, as a topic in an upcoming episode. We're actually want to, going to get into it and tackle some of the nitty-gritty. But, Leanne, I wanted, did you just want to give us, I guess, you know, your, your paragraph, your, your sort of bullet point executive summary of what you think of it? Yeah, well, I, I think many people will remember that they were involved in consultations and um, I, I was pretty stunned actually by the small number of submissions that had been made on this because the review is something that has to happen around such a big reform. But there was a small number of submissions, but people did turn up for the consultations and I think the outcome reflects obviously those consultations. I think the high point is that the, there was a firm um, kind of statement in there that the national quality agenda was a good thing, the national quality framework was a good thing and it's been successful in raising quality and therefore it should firmly stay. So Yay. I think that was that, that's a good sort of high-five moment um, in terms of the early childhood sector and uh, middle childhood sector and also it's a great thing to see a reform so um, firmly um, you know, endorsed as a result of these uh, consultations and review. Um, in terms of what the changes are, there's the idea was uh, put forward to clarify, streamline and reduce the reg burden. So that's what we're going to see as an outcome of these um, recommendations. Oh, this is the decision, actually. This is the, the final decision on these things. And just the quick summary the, and we'll go into the long summary in you know in a few weeks when we can stomach it is um, that the, the standards are being reduced from 18 to 15 with 58 to 40 elements and that's designed to make sure there's no crossover there's improved oversight and support for family daycare um, to achieve better compliance and we've we've uh, <coughs> banged on about family daycare <laughs> compliance at will. So I think that that's something that we would um, consider to be a thumbs up. Uh, there's a removal of the supervisor certificate requirements. So service providers have more autonomy and we can talk more about that in the weeks ahead. But I think that's one that's one little flag, I think, um, is, a, is a challenge. Although it was obviously a huge administrative burden for the reg authorities, there is some opening there um, for maybe some some not great decisions that could be made around um, the responsible person in a service. But and Leanne, hasn't that been in for the last nine months, 12 months? It, well, it has. You're right, Lisa. And it is definitely, it has been in the hands of, um, of the approved provider to make those decisions. But I, I think it's there's still something there that kind of shifts it completely to the autonomy of the, the service to make a decision about that person. And I think there's still some uncharted territory there about who's actually in charge of the service. So mm -hmm. I've got some reservations about that, I suppose. And mm -hmm. I saw someone raise through the week, is there a challenge here in terms of 
um, in terms of remuneration. I think it was um, Bridget might have raised that um, shout out to her. And I think at first I thought, oh, I'm not so sure about that. But then I, I had to think about that. And perhaps there are some issues around that. And uh, yeah, and then finally outside school hours is um, the educator to child ratio is one to 15. So they're the big broad changes. There are a couple of small things that I'm, I've got some concerns about around child protection training and also first aid. Um, but they're, you know, they're smaller things and they're probably things that can be addressed at a local level, but we can talk more about those up ahead. There's, there's one thing actually, sorry to, to keep going, the excellent rating was something that was much discussed mm. because people feel like it's an elitist um, <laughs> issue and that was such a large fee that people were paying that they, they uh, felt like they were excluded from this. Now the fee's gone. So this opens up the opportunity for people who have achieved an exceeding rating to apply for excellent. But Yay! I, yeah, <laughs> but I still think that process ex is exceptionally um, long and laborious, as people have um, talked about And maybe about we it. don't even need an excellent rating. Shock well, horror. Yeah. That's, do, do we need an excellent rating or is exceeding good enough? And one, one other concern I had was that the... Um, instead of it being, oh, what's the terminology around significant improvement? Oh, I think yeah, there was, that some, one. there was some interesting stuff there. We might, um, yeah, we might yeah, get into so some of those specifics a bit down the chain. Explore up ahead. Yeah, well, so I that's, that's kind of the big. Hmm. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Leanne. I might, I might just do a quick. Um, this is like a teaser trailer for that episode. I, anyone who knows me. Uh, fairly well knows I generally hate anything that comes out to do with the reforming or changing the early childhood sector. I'm going to give a bit of a, a bit of a spoiler and say I don't hate what's been announced here. The, the, most of this particularly will get it separate from the National Quality Standard streamlining, which is the big, the big picture thing, which I think we'll have a big meaty discussion about, which I'm still getting to grips with. The regulatory and law changes actually... And having read through and actually where it talks about the decision process and, and, and consultation with the sector, actually the majority of them make a fair bit of sense. I think it's actually a fairly sensible approach, but let's not get into it now. Let's, let's wait. No, can I, can I just really quickly say the one thing that I hate about it? <laughs> it's a bucket load of changes and there's no funded professional support yeah. coordinators to help the sector understand yeah. the bucket load it of does, changes. Well, it does say that a CEQA will prepare guides on a lot of yep, the changes. Yep, and that's got a whole heap of problems, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, and let's... It, did, it did say in the document that they recommended professional development. <laughs> as important. But there's one, one more thing which I think is terrific, and that is the educator, there's no educator liability. Yeah. And I think that that's a big win Very because, um, you know, th this is where the approved provider really needs to keep a strong understanding of what's going on in the centre and also not um, scapegoat individual educators. So I, I, that was one thing I thought, yes, yeah. thank goodness. All right, well, I failed utterly in my attempt to stop us discussing this thing before we actually uh, get, it, get it forward <laughs> to a topic. But uh, let's leave it there. But we, yes, we will definitely be coming back to that because I think um, it's, there's some very interesting stuff in there for us to discuss. Um, this week, uh, the, the annual Closing the Gap statement was also handed down. Um, by the Prime Minister. And, and it's interesting, even before we get into the specifics of it, which, uh, spoiler alert, are not fantastic for children, um, it was interesting. I've always followed this uh, this report each year, and it, it usually sort of dominates the day to a large extent. So I think back to um, last year, the year before, they were fairly... Like, they kind of... It was the big media story of the day. The government generally devoted a day to it. And I remember there was actually a big... There was a fairly big scandal when... Um, I, I've forgotten the specifics. One of you might be able to remind me, but on the day of the closing, the game, I think it was 2014, I think Abbott was um, still our Lord of Master at that point. Um, the government did something really stupid and sort of politicised it, and it was really, it was really brutally smacked down. They said, this is, a really, this is an inappropriate day to do that. It was kind of, it was this one day where sort of partisanship was put aside a bit and we sort of reflected on this stuff. But um, this is all a long intro to say that didn't really happen this week, it kind of got an, it kind of got announced um, in the morning, and then there was just nothing by the afternoon. There were, the, the media orgs weren't really running with it. The government had moved on to other stuff. There were 
busy trying to um, uh, get you know people on NDIS to pay for the omnibus wheel instead of people on Newstart or people daring to have babies and claim pay parental leave. It just sort of disappeared. So even before I get into the specifics, I think I'm just a bit sad that 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 sort of day of reflection, even if it doesn't lead to anything, and even if it's just an opportunity to express some stuff, it yeah. But you know what, Liam? In in news terms, there's not news in something that doesn't change from year to year. Yeah, which is true, and there and the reasons for it are fairly obvious. But I think that that just was disappointing to me that there wasn't a day where we couldn't even just take a day and go, "Geez, we need to we need to up our game in this." But uh, to get to the specifics, so um, the overall report card was pretty poor. So gains in some areas, some losses in some, but the the particular um, poor results this year seem to actually primarily focus around children and young children, which is really disappointing. So figures like infant mortality, um, you have child health. Um, there was the the early childhood education target, which had to be reset uh, last year because it was so dismally failed to be met. Um, they're claiming they don't have data for it this year, which I actually found a bit odd. And when we, we'll, we'll, we'll probably circle back and tackle this as a big topic um, down the track as well. But um, I hope that they claimed in the, in the Closing the Gap report, they actually said we don't have data on early childhood education attendance for Indigenous children yet, which seemed wrong to me. Don't we collect that data all the time? Isn't that done? Through, um... No, we collect enrolments, not attendance. Ah. That's interesting. Well, that, yeah, so they are claiming that that's going to be fixed and will be available for next year's report. So it'll be interesting to see if we can hit that target. But, um, yeah, it's, it's always worth that we're now um, 10 years uh, on from the, the apology from Kevin Rudd in 2007. And we've still got a very, very long way to go, and particularly for children. So it's always, um, it's always a mm. bit of a wake-up call and we'll see if anything happens. Um, yeah, and I, I, I agree with you about it not being, I mean, I know that that's the nature of the news, but any topic at the moment that is difficult around children and around, mm. you know, social responsibility gets kind of turfed out. It's, it just gets shafted in favour of, um, the, of political shenanigans. Yep. They're good at them, though, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> five star, five star. Oh, God. Remember back when we thought the worst thing that could happen was the return of knights and dames? I'd, I'd, I'd t- take them. I'd take them back in a heartbeat if we could ditch some of the legis- the actual legislation they're going to propose. Oh, yes. Good times. Um, and then the third Thank sort you, of. <laughs> And then the other sort of obviously big thing that's continuing to to rumble along like a truck that's lost two wheels is on fire and the driver's drunk at the wheel or something is what's now called the Omnibus Bill. So it's not the... I actually meant to talk about this last week. It's not called the Jobs for Families package anymore. That title seems to have been ditched. It's now the Omnibus... No, it's still, it's still it there in the legislation. It's but it's just all wrapped up now. The legislation's so much bigger than the Jobs for yeah, Families. It's like a double-decker now. It's a double-decker <laughs> bus. It's not an Omnibus. But the wheels are still falling off. <laughs> so we obviously won't get into detail because we, uh, we spent a good hour and a bit ranting about this last week but um, I guess since last week uh, the Nick Xenophon team have, have specifically said they won't back it and and they said they've done this because of just monumental political stupidity from this government where they then almost they tried to subtly not so subtly link the the, the passing of this omnibus nonsense to NDIS payments they basically said we'll look we'll shoot an extra three billion dollars off to the NDIS if you pass this package, I mean, yeah, because they they claimed that they needed to save all this money to pay for the childcare component, the jobs for families package, and now they're discovering that their estimations were over the top and they won't need to spend that much. So they have more made more cuts than what they actually need. So they had to come up with something that they could beat the other parties over the head for not approving. <laughs> so what better thing to use than the NDIS? That's right. It, it feels like bad parenting, though, doesn't it? Like, if you if you eat your dinner, you can have dessert. Oh, no, if you eat your dinner, you can have dessert and you can have... It just keeps going on and on and on. But you know, wasn't... Be, just very quickly, wasn't... Who saw Q&A? Wasn't um, uh, our Jackie Lambie's <laughs> comment amazing? 
Yeah, we'll 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 be, this, is a fam- this is a family-friendly yeah. podcast, Lisa, but do you want to paraphrase? Yeah. Well, when she was saying get the kids out, is that the one? Well, yeah, she saying? just yeah. said get the kids out of these places. Like she was talking mm. specifically about <clears throat> kids who are um, in housing department homes. Like, you know, she might be being a bit <clears throat> biased there, but I think, you know, it's her background. She understands it. Mm. So she's saying... Kids whose parents can't get it together to do eight hours of activity a week are probably the ones that most need to be in early childhood education and care services. And I just thought, yay, Jackie, that's the first time anyone's ever made that really clear. And I think um, she just had such a fantastic grasp of that. I think she's like, we should get her as a champion. What's yeah. it, what, what does this say about the 2017 that the biggest advocate we may have in the Australian Parliament for our reforms is Jackie Lambie? I'm just, yeah. I, we're, we're, we're through the looking glass in, in politics at the moment. But I wondered no, if people... Clive a few years ago? <laughs> oh, I, I, I wondered if people understood that though, Lisa, because I, I felt like she, she had such a strong grasp of it and mm. she kind of knew exactly. But when it came across, it was like people would be going... Oh, so the kids need to be removed from their families? Is that what she's saying? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I thought, I thought. Yeah, but I think it opened. If you looked what happened in the media after that, today the Australian, which as we know is probably one of the most conservative papers, had an article admittedly written by one of their most moderate reporters saying exactly mm. that. This yeah. package was taking yep. childcare away from those that needed it most. I don't think that would have happened if it wasn't for Jackie's outburst. Yeah, yeah. okay. Well, that's great. But I think we're burying the yeah. lead here. Didn't didn't um, didn't Jackie Lambie have some uh, some advice for the government on where they could potentially store this omnibus legislation? And yeah, an interesting part of their anatomy. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. I think that that might have grabbed a few headlines. But um, the only other thing I wanted to add to this um, is so Nick Xenophon, the Nick Xenophon team, which is their sort of block of three Senate voters, um, has said they won't. They they at the moment they won't support the bill. But reading into his stuff, what slightly concerns me is that he's he's pretty much said he's only not supporting it because of the way a the government have gone about the negotiations and 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 b just because it's how much stuff it's linked to. Reading his stuff, I'm slightly worried that I think he he's kind of said that if the early childhood stuff was hived off, he actually supports that stuff. Which and, and you know what, Liam. That's why, and I'm call for every person listening to this to do this immediately. Get on, what make a one-page submission to the Senate inquiry yeah. about the package because it's quite possible that the only thing he'll read about about the childcare component of it is that Senate inquiry report. Yeah. So if you get something in there just saying all you have to say is there are children that will be missing out and these who they these are who they are. Therefore, we don't think that the bill should be passed without significant amendments. Yeah. And if he reads that, then it alerts him to the fact that there's still an equity problem because clearly he has a problem with the welfare components on the grounds of equity. We need him to know that there's an equity problem with... Yeah, hopefully he also bumps into Jackie Lambie around the Senate all summer as well. Yeah. So maybe we could add that link, Liam, up. On Absolutely. The, uh, podcast. Yes. So people can just go straight in. Absolutely. Um, and then the only other, just very, very quick bit, and we, I, I haven't, and I'll be brutally honest, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. So unless either of you have, um, we won't have much to go into it. The the, the most recent NQF snap snapshot um, has come out, um, which is a quarterly sort of look at the data around uh, all the um, services overseen by a CEQA. Um, I did and, have a little look at that. Oh, yeah. have, you, have you got any yeah. any headline snapshots for us? Um, well, I I guess they're getting I, it through services. That's what I noticed. Yeah, I just thought there was good detail in there, and and you're starting to see, um, thanks to a, a group of uh, advocates, that you can <laughs> see service type, um, <laughs> uh, and who's who's doing well, um, who's getting exceeding, and I mean, I I know that we sort of talk about the the not for profit and the for profit agenda here, but essentially. Um, the not-for-profits are actually doing better in the um, 
in the ratings and assessment. So that, that was in there. I, I thought it was interesting the way um, the Mercury represented Tasmania. It said, oh, you know, one in four services, only one in four services is working towards. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, that's 25% of services. But there's, I think the great thing is there's lots of lovely, um, you know, little maps and all that sort of stuff. Graphs. So if you want to get into it and break it down. Well, actual maps, actually, nice little oh. maps too where you can go in and find out about the states. But I think significantly, as always, quality area one is mm. the one that people are struggling with. So, yeah, it, 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 very, you know, very interesting, of course. Mm, well, we'll have the link up for that as well. Um, now we've got um, we're going to move on to our main sort of segment for tonight, which is actually going to be part one of an interview I conducted uh, a little while ago with Professor Frank Oberclade. He works at the Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital and the Centre for Community Child Health. Um, he's been a favourite of mine in the early childhood advocacy and health and and well-being. of mine and of yeah. I, he's the he's an early childhood rock star, which I tell him I've been calling him for quite a while at the start of the interview. So I managed to sit down with him for, for, for quite a while. He was very generous with his time. So what we're going to do is split that into two parts. You'll hear part one uh, this week and part two next week. So uh, stick with us as we go to just a quick uh, little musical break and then we'll be back. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to be here today with Professor Frank Oberclade. Uh, welcome, Frank. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. This is, I'm, uh, as I was telling you before we started, I'm a bit nervous. I've seen you speak and, um, and talk about early childhood development a bit, and um, I may have actually, when I talk about you, I call the early childhood rock star. What I, uh-huh. I, I, don't, I don't have pin-ups of sports stars or movie stars. Um, if there were any Frank Oberclade posters, I've ha- I'd have one. But, um, Unfortunately, my mother passed away a couple of years ago, otherwise she'd be... Very pleased to hear the description of it. I think it's the only one. Otherwise, it's embarrassing. <laughs> well, the more the more people we have talking about early childhood development, the better, as far as I'm I, concerned. I agree with that. Um, so, Frank, I thought um, it might be good if you're happy to maybe just tell us a bit about your background and, I guess, how you came to work at the, the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Yep. Um, well, I wasn't sure I even wanted to do medicine. At the end of my high school, I was always sort of attracted to literature, and so... Uh, my preferences, and I did sciences because I felt that if I didn't like sciences, I could always go back and do humanities, whereas if I started off with humanities in year 11, year 12, the door would be shut to sciences. And given the uncertainty of what I wanted to do, that was my decision. So, uh, And then uh, it was the same at the end of uh, high school, that I really liked literature, I liked writing, I liked poetry, I liked reading novels, um, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So... My preferences were medicine one, law two, and advertising three. And I figured um, medicine was like a, in my mind, the sort of most prestigious profession. If I didn't like that, I could always always go back and do something else. Um, And advertising sort of surprising, but I like language. And, uh, for example, describing a glass in ten words or less without calling it a glass, you know, uh, and even now, I still read the New Yorker and I like literature, etc. So I sort of fell into medicine in a way, and it wasn't until towards the end that I started to really enjoy it. And um, then I went, did my intern year at the Royal Melbourne, and then uh, my second year at the Children's. And there was something about kids, something about the tone of the Children's Hospital, something about the caring and the passion of people who work there um, that. You know, I, I couldn't articulate exactly what it was at the time, but now I'm, I can see why I was drawn to it. And one of the things is that kids are so honest, and you can't be, you can't be arrogant working with children because every now and then you'll have a child urinate on you or vomit. <laughs> That's back to earth. Um, and where you do intervene, you can make a difference for a lifetime. So there's something, you know, very special about um, children, and that's why I ended up being a paediatrician. Which I think, um, yes, a lot of the listeners who work in the sector would agree. And it, it kind of doesn't surprise me that you've, um, you've got such an interesting language. I think one of the particular things I like about your work is um, how well you, you, you've got a way of speaking about early childhood development that makes people sit up and take notice, particularly politicians, which is probably the, the fundamental thing uh, we need politicians learning more about child development these days. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later, I'm sure. But one of the challenges is... Um, taking sort of complex uh, 
sometimes ambiguous concepts and translating them, quote-unquote, so uh, politicians can understand it and can respond to it. But um, we'll come back and talk about that a little later, perhaps. Absolutely. And um, so at the Royal Children's Hospital, you work um, with the Centre for Community Child Health. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about that specific part of the hospital. Well, uh, I was the inaugural director of that. After doing my paediatric training here, I went to Boston and I had a fellowship at Harvard. Then I was on staff there and I was trained in child development and behavior. Um, and what turned me on, I think, to lots of things in my career, but to the idea of, of prevention, early intervention, etc., is some research I was lucky enough to participate in while I was there. And that was something called the Brookline Early Education Project. And that story is that in the um, mid-1970s, I guess, a long time ago, uh, a Harvard professor of education published a book. His name was Burton White. He published a book called The First Three Years of Life, in which he argued with much less evidence than we have today that the first three years of life were very, very important. And I lived in Brookline, had a very, very good school system. Uh, It's a suburb just adjacent to Boston. And the superintendent of the Brookline school system, Dick Ferber, I remember his name, Richard Ferber, I think I remember his name, Um, very enlightened, very visionary. He read this book and he said, look, if this is true, waiting until children turn six, because that's the school starting age in America, uh, is much too late, that we have to do something much earlier. So he got uh, funding from the Robert Johnson Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation, and he set up a demonstration project called the Brookline Early Education Project, or BEEP, in which, I'm going to say this slowly because it's sort of unbelievable, (laughs) school systems enrolled children in the last trimester of the mother's pregnancy. So as the mother was approaching term, she'd go to the school and enroll her child at school. And so there was a education and assessment and intervention program and play groups, etc. So it was way ahead of its time. And that sort of turned me on, I suppose, to the importance of uh, early childhood, to the importance of prevention, to the importance of uh, working in community as opposed to universities and hospitals, and particularly working with other professionals. So BEEP was very richly funded. I got to work with some pretty amazing early educators and psychologists and public health people and education people and learnt, learnt heaps. So that was the beginning, I suppose, of my interest you know, in early child development. And then I came back to Australia and um, I was the inaugural director of this centre and uh, been here for a long time. <laughs> Which we're very grateful for. Um, and then before we get, we get on to um, some of the sort of specifics around the work, um, I, I know you're also, um, another thing you've been doing for quite a while is you're chair of the Victorian Children's Council. Um, I think you've been part of that since yeah. 2005. Um, and I was hoping if you could tell, just, um, tell us about that as well, because I think that does some really interesting stuff at that sort of advocacy level. Yeah. Well, we were interested for quite a long long time in trying to convince government that early childhood, early childhood <laughs> was important. Um, and then during, uh, well, you said, you said 2005, that's probably about right. But before that, there was a, um, a committee set up by the Brex government, um, which predated the Victorian Children's Council, and um, that made a whole lot of recommendations, including the setting up a council, including a focus on early childhood. Um, and every one of those recommendations uh, – from this committee was recommended, was taken up by Brax. So the Victorian Children's Council was established by legislation um, to give governments advice around early childhood policy and children's policy more generally. Uh, and part of that also, part of that legislation set up Victorian Victorian Services Coordination Board, which is a inter, intersectoral committee with the, the heads of a number of government departments health, education, welfare, law, police, etc. Um, so that was you know, a very, very powerful statement, I suppose. And I was an inaugural member and then I was deputy chair and then for the last num- number of years I've been chair. So we're a group of quote-unquote experts and mm-hmm. practitioners and we meet every couple of months uh, with an agenda that's given to us partly by government 
you know, we'd like you to discuss the following issues and give recommendations to government and party issues that, that we come up. So we have an annual work plan that's approved by government. And we like to think we've had a little bit of impact in uh, supporting government to uh, provide early childhood policy. Uh, and uh, other states are sort of looking at that. I know the Northern Territory at one stage was looking at establishing something along similar lines. But I think there are two things. One is a very important statement about the importance of early childhood. Secondly, the notion that not all wisdom resides in government, that there are people outside government that can make a contribution and indeed are seeking to make a contribution. Uh, and thirdly, the, the actual content of some of the advice that we give. And I think successive ministers of early childhood uh, have probably, I'd like to think, benefited from at least some of the advice that we've been able to give to them. Well, I think you're pretty right. I mean, Victoria has a pretty good uh, national rep- uh, reputation in how it sort of does a lot of children's issues, and I think um, particularly about the, the Koori preschools and how those are rolled out and um, and their particular approach to, to preschool funding. So I think you're probably right, and I, I, would, I would hope that that sort of model would be taken up. Um, and I think uh, you're, you're quite rightly, and I think... Um, We've had a series of very passionate ministers, <laughs> ministers of early childhood uh, or ministers to children. And a number of years ago, again under Braxton Brumby, uh, the minister for children was named the minister for children and early childhood development. Um, and the Department of Education at the time was called the Department of Education and Early Childhood Development. So, you know, we thought that was really important. And uh, again, the, the symbolism of that is not to be underestimated. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. So I want to leap right in now, um, Professor Overclave, and talk um, about that sort of advocacy piece. So, uh, you know, our show has a very strong focus on that. We're all, the three of us are um, a pretty crazy uh, advocates for early childhood education. And, and like I said, the, I've, in following the work you and the Centre for Community Child Health has done, particularly in things like the policy briefs um, mm-hmm. and uh, just in... Um, sort of you know, workshops and, and, and speaking engagements as well has been what we were talking about before that way of being able to just do all these very complex theories and, um, and systems around early childhood development into, into um, ways that people can understand. I, I will always remember um, your description of, that, of those first five years as like building the foundations of a house. So I won't spoil it. It'd be great if you could sort of summarise that, but I was just going to sort of ask, you know, for, for the people listening to this, to this episode, you know, why are the first five years so important to you? Well, I think that there are They're very robust. I suppose we've always known intuitively about the importance of the early years. You know, the Jesuits say, "Give me a man for the first seven years," and or, you know, whatever that saying is. And uh, but I, I think the research over the last ten, twenty years has just strengthened. It's really uh, robust and uncontested research and that really points to the sensitivity of the developing brain in those five years before the child starts school so that the genes can provide the roadmap but it's the dance between the genes and the environment that really determines how children turn out, how adults turn out and we can't do much to change the genes but we can intervene at the level of the environment so We've known for a long, long time the sort of environmental conditions that young children need to thrive and prosper. You know, good nutrition, protection from infection, that's why we immunise them. But especially a responsive and warm and stimulating and consistent caretaking environment that parents provide, families provide, good early uh, early learning centres provide. Uh, so that the developing brain in those early years is dependent on the quality of the input they get from the environment, whether it's language, um, whether it's vision, whether it's the way the parents respond to the child. It's very interactive. So that's the first part of it, the the sensitivity of the developing brain. And where those environments are suboptimal, where parents are prevented from doing what they would like to do, that is, you know, look after their children properly for a number of reasons, extreme poverty, or where parents have mental health problems, or where there's um, substance abuse uh, in situations where uh, young children are exposed to family violence, or where they're the subjects of um, uh, violence themselves, uh, child abuse, sexual abuse, and so on. 
what happens is that that creates a very stressful environment for children, and a stressful environment, which is persistent in those early years, raises stress hormones in the young child's brain, cortisol and uh, various products. And where there's persistently high levels of stress hormones, that interferes very significantly with brain development, so that the foundations that are laid down in those early years are not as good as we would like them. Um, so that's the first bit of research. And where young children are exposed to suboptimal or stressful early environments, there are long-term consequences. So the second piece of research is what we call life course research. And that tells us what happens in those early years has lifelong impacts. So where there's stressful environments and where there's persistently high levels of uh, stress hormones in the young child's brain, that uh, influences um, brain development and it resets the body's physiological systems. It affects the immune system, it affects the cardiovascular regulatory system, uh, it affects what we call the neuroendocrine axis. It resets them at a very different level and makes that child uh, as he or she so much more vulnerable to a whole range of problems in adult life. So if you look at some of those conditions in adult life, such as diabetes, heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, mental health problems, um, welfare dependency, poor education, crime participation, there's increasingly robust evidence that many of those conditions in many people have their origins in pathways that begin very early on, usually in those early years. So the combination of those two things... Um, the brain development research that tells us about the importance of the early years, the life course research that tells us what happens in early, those early years has lifelong consequences, creates a very compelling case, in my opinion, for prevention, early intervention. And the third part of the equation is that economists around the world are now uh, coming to sit around the table because they're just um, very convinced by the economic argument that it makes so much more sense to invest in early childhood uh, and a prevention paradigm rather than try and spend money on these kids um, later on when problems are entrenched, let alone build more prisons. And it seems like if you can get uh, early childhood advocates, medical professionals, economists on the same page, we're probably headed on the right track. Right. And here are some challenges, Liam, about <laughs> translating the research. So. Um, we have data from the Australian Early Developmental Centres that tell us that nationally in this prosperous high-income country called Australia, uh, one in five kids arrives at school developmentally vulnerable or at risk. That is to say that they get to school not quite ready to take advantage of all that school has to offer. In some communities, it's every second child. So what we're expecting and there are lots of reasons for that, the most prominent of which is children who are born in disadvantaged circumstances, particularly indigenous kids, particularly kids that grow up in households that experience poverty and live in disadvantaged communities. So what we're expecting schools to do is to compensate for the first five years of children before they get to school, and that's a very, very challenging task. So James Heckman, who won a Nobel Prize for economics a number of years ago and is now a leading international advocate for increased investment in children, he's been quoted as saying that the best way to improve the schools is to improve the early environments of the children sent to them. That's a pretty powerful quote from an economist. <laughs> That's right. It also says that... Um, Economically, the very best, the very best economic investment that any country can make is in early childhood development. And that's a theme that's been taken up around the world now by agencies such as the World Health Organization, UNICEF, the World Bank. All of these international institutions are now saying the same thing uh, and are advocating very strongly with national governments around the world to increase their investment in, in early childhood because they're now arguing on the basis of very solid research that their future prosperity and productivity as individual countries depends on um, the healthy development of young children. So thanks again to Professor Frank Overclade for 
donating some of his uh, his very busy time to sit down with me. Part two of that interview uh, will be there uh, in the podcast stream next week as our main topic. So I'm looking forward to it. That was fascinating. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. I'm honing my interview skills as I go along. Yeah, you're going well. So we're going to move on now to our recommendations of the week. And um, I think we've just settled into a routine as we go next. So I'll stop thinking about it. So Leanne, I think you always get to kick us off because you've always got very interesting ones. It's the oh, conversation it's- again, though. <laughs> but we no, we relaxed that ban at the end of last year, Lisa. Yeah, and I have to say, I have not put in one one conversation article for some time, so I have to reinvigorate my passion for the conversation <laughs> articles. Um, look, it really follows on from uh, what you were talking about, the Closing the Gap report, and I suppose the significant um, piece in, in this particular article, which is uh, called Back to School, Understanding Challenges Faced by Indigenous Children, uh, has has a strong sort of piece of writing in there about children attending early childhood education and that we have not met that 95% target that we set and it's uh, sitting, uh, according to the um, according to the measurements in 2013, at 75%, which was an improvement on 46%. <laughs> Um, but you know, it really sort of looks at the vulnerabilities and the um, the ADC <coughs> being the the areas of vulnerability, and the significant piece about culture being important to be embedded in in um, all education. Yeah, I think the 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 more you drill down as well, the more depressing it gets. Because I remember pulling together some stats for some work I was doing last year. Um, and on average, Indigenous children are performing about uh, twice as bad on the AEDC measurements as non-Indigenous children. But if you then look into that, um, what's uh, lots of people are going to disagree with me on this, but what's often regarded as probably the most important or the most indicative, which is the literacy and numeracy, um, I've forgotten the word now, the uh, scale curve, that's it's completely gone, but the literacy and numeracy area, Indigenous children are four times as likely to be struggling in that area compared to... Um, compared to non-Indigenous children, which, yeah, we've, we've got a long way to go. And especially when we've got an education system that is actually focused on that. So that's that yeah. next problem about the system. So. Yeah, yeah. All right, Lisa, what are you bringing us? Look, I'm bringing you um, an article by one of my favourite writers in the early mm-hmm. education and care space, Judith Sloan. Lisa. Yeah, she was the one. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, she's got some very strong feelings about um, childcare and uh, early childhood educators. I always think that she must have had a preschool teacher that was very, very mean from. But um, we're not putting in the link to this article because I don't want people clicking on the link and making it sound like people actually read her column. Um, but we've got an image of it that will go up on the page. Does that work? Liam, I just realised I've said something that I don't know if we can do. I'll make it work, Lisa. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Anyway, I'll just, if I had a great Judith Sloan voice, I'd read it in her voice, but I'll just read. Can we all have a go imagining what her voice is? I've never heard her speak. Really? (laughs) No, I think I've I've heard her speak. It's more like, it's my mind. Pick up 85% of cost of childcare, flow income. That was good. What's yours, Liam? How do you reckon she'd go? Mm. Trouble, this is no way I can do it without sounding vaguely sexist. But um, go I'm ahead. wondering. <laughs> no, you're not. Go ahead. I'm going to go with um, these early childhood educators sending out their newsletters. <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, given that we don't know what her voice is like, I'll just use mine and I'll just read you some of the key choice things. She's basically saying Xenophon did the right thing by rejecting the package, but not because of all the welfare stuff, but because why should we pay for childcare? And she said so that it, it, um, she thinks that the government needs to go back to the drawing board. Yes, do we, but well, yeah. for slightly different reasons. Some disturbing overlap. So her three reasons why they should is that whatever changes are to be made, they must be contained within the same funding envelope, and this envelope will increase only by the CPI. 
The second principle is to st establish what is really being achieved by the mooted changes. Is the government wanting to encourage women into the workforce or to work more hours? Or does it want to redistribute this form of government transfer for, to an even greater extent than is currently the case? To my mind, picking up 85% of the cost of childcare for low-income earners is excessive. But make up your own mind. <laughs> and the third principle is that she loves the activity test. It must be applied rigorously. Work, study, training or looking for a job are fine, but not just dropping the kids off just so somebody else can look after them. Actually, mm. I think I dropped out of my voice. My voice doesn't sound nearly that horrible. You're a bit dramatic um, there, Lisa. So, I quite like that. Yeah. Shakespearean. <laughs> anyway, so you can see what she's saying. You know, people should mind their own kids. The government shouldn't pay for it. And, um, you know, d work out how you're trying to manipulate the workforce because that's the most important thing to do through a childcare package, obviously. Obviously. Excellent, yes. Who was really mean to her when she was a young mum? Yeah, confess, guys. I know. Who had, there's some investigative who had her in their childcare There's some centre. investigative journalism to be done there. Um, mine's going to be fairly quick. So one of the uh, good outcomes of the most recent ACT territory election um, was, A, the uh, appointment of Yvette Berry as the Deputy Chief Minister, and Yvette has a background in early childhood education, uh, both as a practitioner and as an advocate, um, and that her title was Minister for Education and Early Childhood Development, so the first time in the ACT. Yay! Yay! Early childhood has been referred to. And she uh, announced uh, today we're right up to the minute, that um, she would be beginning consultations on a future of education discussion paper and reform process. Now, as these things tend to be, it is mostly focused on primary and secondary school, but I'm heartened to say that um, there will also be a focus on early childhood education, and particularly, and I want to just probably block, I'll probably just quote this, um, she says, we know, for example, that time spent in early childhood education, particularly for those children from low-income families, is incredibly important in getting them ready for school. And we will also use this process to an inform a strategy in support of greater access to quality early childhood education and care, which is probably one of the strongest statements I've seen from particularly in the ACT around the importance of the work we do. So I'm looking forward to seeing where that, where that goes. Yes. Action Good. to follow the rhetoric. Exactly, yeah. And more consultation. I'm looking forward to drafting up a submission as I speak. <laughs> so that's it for the main part of our work, uh, for our work. It is, it is work, but it's fun work, our, our episode, <laughs> our episode for this week. Um, as usual, I'll remind everyone, uh, if you get a chance, um, there's, now, there's now a few different ways you can support um, the incoherent ramblings we get we, we manage to put out every every week you can um, support us on patreon so if you head to patreon.com forward slash early edu show um, you can make you know as small as a donation as one dollar a month to um, help us uh, keep this crazy show on the road and we're all a bit I think sort of blown away that we're already getting a, a, a fair bit of support from some um, some people who must have better things to spend their money on but apparently don't um, so we want to very humbly and nervously and graciously say thank you very much to those people who are already supporting us. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it really helps us grow sure. and do more fun things. I don't know why you're thanking them, Lisa. You've got to watch some. You've got some fun episodes of things to watch coming I up. I know. This. Why don't I ever agree to this? <laughs> well, sharpen those pencils, Lisa. So, so, it's time for you to get writing. I know when Doctor Who's coming back. Do you know when The Bachelor's coming back, Leanne? No, but I thought that Lisa could probably do um, Married at First Sight. I thought that might oh. be a, that might be nice. Yeah, because The Bachelor's been done, but Married at First Sight, I think she could lend oh. her pen to. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. I'm looking forward to us doing a live episode, personally. So yeah, so... <laughs> it might be us in a room with nobody else. <laughs> it's still Which technically live. We'd be in the same room. <laughs> We'd be in the same room. Yeah, so I reckon be... we, we might have an interview party with drinks oh. and, like, 
decorations and stuff. I'm there. Yeah. I'm there. For anyone who's not sure what we're babbling on about, as part of Patreon, there's a, there's a reward, a sort of reward goal system. So if we're supported to a certain amount, um, we'll do some extra fun stuff, which might be a live show, and um, getting Lisa to have to watch some some shows she really doesn't want to watch, which is um, we've already met that target, so that's happening. Um, we we value and appreciate everyone who can do that. If you, as we completely understand, if you if that's not something you can do, what would also really help is a rating and review on our iTunes page. That helps sort of bump us up the rankings and means other early childhood professionals and advocates and and people of a like mind can find us and and listen to what we say as well. So thank you very much to anyone who's who's done either of those or will be doing so. Um, we uh, we now, can I just uh, oh. do a very private shout out oh, here, Liam? Of course. I've I've had a very um, unusual situation for me, and that two of my closest friends, who I've known since our children were at school, you know, and I don't actually know them through the early education and care sector, but as you know, as their lives went on, they both became coordinators of Wush services. Now, they're neighbouring Wush services in a very small community in Sydney, in the inner west, and they both got rated two weeks ago. You can imagine my concern. What would happen if one of them was rated well and one of them wasn't? <laughs> what would happen if they were both rated badly? Would I ever be able to talk to either of them again? So I just want to congratulate both North Newtown Ush and Australia Street Ush on getting excellent ratings. You've solved my friendship dilemmas. Oh, yay. Oh, Congrats. Well, not excellent. Exceeding. 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 Oh. Exceeding. Yeah, That's they, fantastic. They, at the moment, they'll, yeah, they'll have to pay for that excellent rating if they want that. <laughs> um, until, until February 2018. could write it up for them. <laughs> that's fantastic. Congratulations. Oh, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah, fantastic yeah. work. Um, so as ever, you can you can get in touch with us at, at any time. You can you can hit us up on Twitter and Facebook at Early Edu Show. Um, I think I always forget to let everyone know about this one, but we've also got um, a Gmail account now as well, which is Early Edu Show at Gmail dot com. Um, I didn't know that. I think oh, did I? I, I, I think I, we're going to send an email to it. I think I've had it, I've had it set up for a while. I just keep forgetting to mention it, and probably just sadly waiting for someone to email us, which is difficult because I haven't told anyone it's there. But um, it's there now, so if you want to make me feel a little bit happier, feel free to send me a random email on that one. And I'll, what I'll, was the I'll address again? Earlyedushow at gmail.com. Yeah. Right. O- only nice Thank emails you. from you two. And <laughs> you can, as always, you can find us all individually. Mainly we, um, we haunt Twitter. So you can find me at Liam McNicholas. And me at Lisa J. Bryant. And me at Leanne MG3. <laughs> Nah, no. that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Leanne M. Gibbs 3. That's it, isn't it? That's it. Well done. Yeah, that's it. Great. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Now, you know we're recording this Thursday night, so I'm not going to have time to edit that out, Leanne. It's Nate. <laughs> I think I'm it's so funny when some of the mistakes stay in anyway. <laughs> it's just... Keeps staying there, doesn't it? It just cannot get it out of my head. That's all right. So until next week, we hope you have a we hope you have a, a wonderful week doing whatever it is you do in the early education sector and beyond. So until next week, it's goodbye from me, and from me, and from me. And from me.